This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is her podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're going to talk about in this episode include... Lightning Round. Lightning Round. And more... Lightning Round! Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. So, Ken, guess what number episode this is? Oh, I could never guess, Robin. I would have to read it off the uh, script in front of me, which says it's episode 450. 450 episodes? 450. Yeah. That's that's, insane. uh, Many thousand segments, or a thousand and a bit segments. Lots of segments. Many segments. We're now embarking on, uh, essentially, our 10th year of podcasting is about to begin. That seems dizzying in and of itself. Time lost its meaning but a year ago. Otherwise, yeah. I'd be I'd be freaking out about that. I think. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, one of those years was made of goo, yeah. and we'll yeah. never know. Physics will never tell us. Yeah. Uh, the the fact that we are uh, now in shouting range of how long Frasier was on the air is getting a little scary. <laughs> quite frankly, I hope that like Frasier, we have remained a core part of American entertainment, but also like Frazier, I hope that you haven't minded when we get self-indulgent, just screw around. Right. So thank you very much for indulging our self-indulgence and helping us screw around with your Patreon backage. If you're a Patreon backer, if you're not a Patreon backer, well, we still love you, but we would love you just that little bit more. Robin perhaps would extend a manly Canadian nod to you if you backed. So think about it. (laughs) Yes. There's a difference between being loved in general and being a beloved Patreon backer. Exactly. And that difference is the ability to hold your head high in all public gatherings. Right. And and as is our won't, this episode, we're just thanking everybody, all of our backers. Everybody. Everybody should be thanked. Yes. Uh, rather than having specific shoutouts, we'll, of course, have the shoutouts back uh, next week. But, Ken, what else happens when we have a nice, beautiful, round number like 450, what else do we do? When we get one of them big, fat zeros on the end of the episode number? Yeah, well, Robin, I believe that what we do is... Lightning round! So thank you again to the Patreon backers who supplied quick questions for us to quickly answer. And uh, without uh, further ado, uh, let us get started. Uh, this is... I, I was about to add this question under the name of A. Ringer. I was about to start with a hoax, with cruel subterfuge, but no. it turns out it is unnecessary because a beloved Patreon backer, specifically Tim Vert, has actually asked the question that I think is on everybody's lips and minds, which is, the U.S. government has acknowledged the existence of UFOs. Does this change anything? And specifically, I guess, does it change anything from the last time we talked about it about a year ago? No, I think no, because the last time we talked about it, I said, this is just the chance to cycle Project Credulous Dupe in the hopes of fooling the Chinese instead of the Russians. Good luck with that. I encourage Project Credulous Dupe. I work for it. I help it out whenever I can, but I'm not obliged to believe in it. So there we are. Uh, No, it doesn't change anything. What will change anything is if actual aliens land on the White House lawn and say, I demand to be taken to literally anyone else besides someone on the White House lawn. That will change stuff. Other than that, nope, it's just good old Raytheon, good old uh, U.S. Navy, good old kids running around messing with big old defense contracts and uh, scaring the Chinese, all of which 
good for them. Right. Because the revelations that were just on 60 Minutes were the ones we talked about a year ago. Yeah. It's the same people. It's the, it's the, it's the Tic Tac video, which is probably falling space junk. Not to ruin anyone's fun this early in lightning round, but there we are. That's what it was. Lightning round! David Soa asks, and I think David Soa asks Robin, it is critically important to find out how these Canadian espionage beavers took out this town's internet and why they needed to send this Canadian town off the grid. There is no more Canadian story except perhaps the Leafs losing at hockey. So Robin, tell us, <laughs> tell us if you will, what's up with your crazy power beavers? So. Many people sent me this news story a few uh, weeks ago, which Wild. was uh, Beaver cuts off town's internet by chewing through cable. And I hate to start off. This is just a fun ruining anniversary episode because it is awful. Beaver cuts cable is a headline uh, up, up in these parts, roughly on a par with, uh, I don't know, what would it be for other places? Seagull steals French fry or, <laughs> or cat knocks object off dresser. This, this is not a new story. They do this all the time. And since Simon Rogers, a friend of the show, funder of the show, is not here, I should point out that squirrels do it even more often. So when you have beavers in your, in your land, you just have to accept a certain amount of that. And beavers cause a lot of damage to a lot of things. And uh, they have no particular objection to the internet. In fact, they were probably quite frustrated when they couldn't uh, dial up the Queen's Gambit on Netflix because their their interest in chess is well known. So... When beavers do that, you know, we all suffer, including the beavers. Lightning round! Kilo Nohe asks, given a brand new gaming group, would you prefer a group who is totally new to a world or mythos like Lovecrafts, who you can introduce to the world and use the classic tropes, or a group of old hats who you can try and pull change-ups on? Since I sort of have been gaming with one of each for the last few years, it, this is sort of the sushi or steak question. It depends on what you're in the mood for. They're both great. They're part of a balanced breakfast. Also, I would reject the premise because uh, the reason these classic tropes are classics is you can use them even with old hat groups. You can uh, dive into them. You can explore them. You don't have to do any change-ups, any messing around. You can make it work because it is a glorious mythos. So, all that said, I have deliberately trained my Monday night game to be old hats who get my bits. So it would be a little invidious of me to say, I don't prefer that. So I guess that's what I prefer. Robin, do you have a choice? I think the, as described, the trade-off is very accurate, right? That you, you have advantages on both. And it's, it's, as you suggest, like choosing between two good, interesting things. I think you can sometimes be surprised with a group who are totally new to something and kind of be thrown for a loop when they, really don't get the tropes or you have to spend a lot of time explaining basics that are uh, second nature to you. So I, I suppose if you put a gun to my head and force me to choose between two new game groups, I think I would probably pick the uh, old hat group, but that would probably not be about information and familiarity with tropes because it may be that kids today know Cthulhu better than older people did back in the day when they had to go and do on all the reading because it is so uh, pervasive, uh, but it might be just due to sort of generational assumptions about what uh, goes on uh, in a good game group. Lightning round! Chris Camfield asks, pirates or ninjas, Robin? Well, the thing about ninjas is you can never be sure if they're in the room with you. That's their whole thing. They're stealthy. Yeah. There could be ninjas in my office as I record this podcast at this very moment. Pirates, by contrast, you are never unaware that you're in the presence of a pirate. They make that known. So since there might be ninjas in the room, there aren't pirates in the room. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Ninjas. And uh, rum, better than sake, pirates. Lightning round! Stephen Milkowski asks, How would you have rescued Wraith the Oblivion if White Wolf had made you head developer and given you an ample budget instead of it being retired. Uh, I'm not sure that it needed a lot of rescuing. I mean, uh, Rich Dansky is one of the great game developers in the storied history of our little field, and he did an amazing job, knocked it out of the park. So I think what I probably would have done is taken half the ample budget and hired Rich Dansky, and then I would have <laughs> said, Rich, let's, um, uh, let's pull it back to just ghosts around the table, 
maybe not so much exploring the uh, magical afterlife of Stygia, you know, out of the dreamlands, back to the, back to Arkham. That's my, that's my thought on Wraith the Oblivion is, uh, we need more ghosts in the real world and less weird afterlife nonsense. But I think that's my, that's my response to virtually everything. It's not Wraith's fault that, that that's an option. I mean, that's a good thing that it's an option because there are a million people who love the dreamlands and they should have a Wraith as well. That's what I would do. Robin? Yeah, I, I think you've sort of hit on it already, is that the thing about any game property that has a not big enough, but passionate a group of followers, the, the head developer who's assigned the job of doing a new version of it is in a bind. Because if you say, well, the thing that those people all like about it is wrong, I'm going to do something completely different, like have ghosts who get to do things and have an impact on the world and aren't just sort of lead characters who are observers, you could make that critique of Wraith and say, do people want to play this kind of ghost? But if you followed that on and did something that was radically different, the only people who are fervently waiting for a new Wraith are going to be angry and disappointed. And you're not necessarily going to attract uh, a group of other people to it, even if your theory about what would have made Wraith bigger back in the day was correct. Lightning round! Sean Richards asks, what Marvel or DC property would be your dream to work on? And Robin, let's presume that you're not having to work with Marvel or DC in this. Been there, done that, the Hulk. Can? (laughs) Uh, The Phantom Stranger, absolutely the best DC character, best hero, best everything. He comes of age in the Loosh 70s, which is the best era for uh, comic books. Not coincidentally, the era I grew up reading comic books. I wonder if there's a connection there. Probably not. Yeah, Phantom Stranger. I'd love to do the Phantom Stranger. I'd love to do him proud. Lightning round! Jamie Twine asks, was there any incident or disagreement in the 19th or 20th century occultism where Aleister Crowley was somehow not the problem or was in the right? Ken, I I don't have an answer for this because I've only read the short biography of Crowley. (laughs) Uh, Is is there a a good thing he ever did in the long biography of Crowley? In the the long history of Aleister Crowley, did he ever do anything right? I'm going to say that while he may have been theoretically or even theologically in the right, because so much of his writing was about taking the piss out of other occultists who certainly all deserve that too. The trouble is the person making that point is Alistair Crowley. So worst person in the world dot gif is the story with Alistair. Um, he, he leaned into that stuff. So even when he was right, he was wrong. That's my Alistair Crowley shorthand. Robin. Lightning round. The Molten Sulphur blog asks, non-traditional lightning round question. How are you guys doing? It's been a rough year for a lot of folks. Y'all holding up okay? Man, Molten Sulphur blog, that is a lovely question. Thank you for asking. Robin? So, Molten Sulphur, if you talk to someone and ask them uh, how they've been doing uh, over the pandemic and, and the lockdown, and they say, great. You know, I have to acknowledge my privilege. All of our yoga practice has really been increasing. You know, the rest of that sentence is going to go on to be, and recruitment for my apocalyptic death cult is way up. (laughs) So by that token, my answer is not great. And I think that even without that as prologue, I will also say... I'm doing great now because I am fully vaccinated and I actually got to go out and live in a city of 3 million, which is a life choice I made back in 1988. And for most of 2020, I was living in a city of two, not my ideal, even if the other person in the city is my darling wife, Sheila. I like, I like the other stuff. So now I'm doing fine before not so fine. That's what I would say. Yeah. I, I've been looking at the, at the graphs in Canada is looking like it's, four to five weeks behind American tipping from not great into uh, better. So I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to tipping. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers 
are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. Lightning Round! Nicola Wilson asks, if Sheila and Valerie talked about stuff, what huts would they have? I think that there would definitely be a clothing hut in the sense of making it, right? Valerie is an accomplished sewer slash couturier and sheila of course is goddess of knitting so i know that they would have that i know that they agree on bollywood so there there would be a, probably similarly a cinema hut but there'd be a lot more bollywood in it than i think there is in our hut uh robin what have you got yeah i think that's basically it there'd be a craft hut there would be a uh a cinema hut possibly a television hut there'd be uh some overlap on the, the crime blotter would have some tv police procedurals in it uh, then, of course, there's how great Ken and Robin are hut. Yeah, that's a good hut. Lightning round! Eric, speaker in digressions, asks, Is North American pop culture at peak superhero yet? Is something going on beyond a lot of attempts to copy the MCU's financial success? Robin? It turns out the appetite for superheroes so far seems like it has yet to be slaked. And we will know when we've hit peak superhero when the leading indicator, the MCU starts to drop off, right? If the Eternals comes out and it's sort of a flop and uh, all of the, you know, because they've run out of all of the super marquee characters, but we've seen in the past that they can have giant hits with very obscure characters. So once that starts to fall away, but I don't think we're going to see the sort of cultural wins that have lead, led to everything being nerd troped and having the nerd culture of the 70s and 80s being the dominant culture of today. I don't see what happens to change that unless there's some sort of big sybaritic thing that comes out of the pandemic uh, aftermath and we all suddenly find ourselves in 1968 again. Yeah, I think that it's not a coincidence that superheroes boom when the rest of the country seems to be sort of falling apart. They were big in the 30s, they were big in the 60s, and they're big today. So you don't have to believe with Grant Morrison that we are culturally exorcising our ghosts. But I think there is something to the notion that when real problems seem intractably annoying, uh, watching brightly colored people punch each other is, you know, it's 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 a lovely soporific, uh, right? It, it makes everything not annoying for a little bit, except, of course, you know, the, the terrible lighting on the fight scene is annoying. But yeah, that's uh, that. And then, of course, the old Marxist observation that now that it's cheap to make uh, super CGI comparatively, more people do it. That's just standard old cultural criticism based on material conditions. Derek Heimforth asks, which famous property that has never been made into a published game do you think would make a particularly fun or innovative RPG? Um, let's see. Uh, something that has never been made into a published game is asking a lot because, of course, you can say something specifically like Red Harvest has never been made into a published game. But obviously, there's been a million gangster games and probably even a million Yojimbo style scenarios. So I'm not sure that, that that's a, a, you know, a useful answer. I feel like in terms of things in the world of genre, I think there's a ton of uh, very uh, fun and exciting stuff going on in science fiction that hasn't been touched that, you know, it's uh, hard to build the audience for something like Werner Vinge's Deep Time series or whatever it is beyond the deep. It's, it's the Werner Vinge one. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Oh, fire upon the deep. Um, but that, I guess, argues uh, the problem with doing it, because if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know why it would be a good RPG. So, yeah, there's tons of things, but would they sell? Would anyone buy them? I don't know. I would love to, at some point, have enough of a heads up on it, on a new thing coming out from Armando Iannucci and doing a game around that, which would be some sort of variation on Skullduggery. Also, it would be fun to get like the HBO license and do a whole book of uh, series pitches for Succession and The Sopranos and uh, Westworld and all of their uh, other games that uh, follow the drama system uh, formula. So it'd be uh, great to do that. But all of the genres are taken and you could just look to 
you know, what what is a new cool thing that no one has has jumped on yet? I mean, we're in a world where there's a ghost dog RPG for goodness sakes. Yeah, we're 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 well beyond we're well beyond the event horizon on that. Neil Barnes asks, "What's the best food to cook when we're hosting in-person game nights again? And what's the best food to make and eat when playing a final online game session to make other players jealous?" Robin, I'm going to start with the second question. Order in a, a salumi or a charcuterie plate from a, uh, a restaurant that de- delivers one of those things. And that way you can slowly lift up all the little delicious cheese and also cured meat, if that's your deal, things, and slowly eat the olives. You can drag out the uh, online Zoom meeting food envy uh, throughout the course of the event. I do not cook for my players. Uh, they get enough work out of me as it is for the GM. So my experience being cooked for is the aforementioned Simon Rogers. So the correct answer to that question is a sort of a, a roast a beef or roast pork dinner. And of course, sticky toffee pudding for dessert and or pudding, depending on which way you talk. I certainly endorse that, but I will say that for our first in-person Fall of Delta Green game, Emily made lobster rolls, and that is a hard thing to beat. And uh, I agree with your charcuterie suggestion because the trouble with eating online is not that it makes people jealous, but it makes them disgusted. So any of the ribs, fried chicken, other wonderful possibilities, you'll just sound like a horrible slobbering monster over the internet, whereas you can decorously nibble on charcuterie and thus not interfere with play. Right. If you're playing a shagath for the whole session. Then- yeah, then go, go nuts, get rib tips. But I, I don't think you are. Lightning round! Jonathan Kime asks, Asylums and creepy old haunted houses make fun settings for horror gaming. What other settings are underutilized for it? My first instinct is to say freighters on on a ship. I don't think that we have enough awareness of, first of all, how enormous modern freighters are, and second of all, how much how few people there are on a modern freighter. You've got something the size of a football field uh, that has a crew of nine. It's just impossible to uh, cover every inch of the ship. And so it's a perfect spot for something awful to be. And of course, you know, with uh, modern containerized cargo, you know, you don't even know what you got necessarily. You just know it came on the railroad, got put in the in the hold and off you go. So it could be anything. It could be the the relic monster from the relic. It could be, you know, a gang of dematerializing thieves. It could be the, the ghost of the person that was crushed under the container when it was lowered into the hold. Who can say, right? It's it's good fun. Freighters are big and they're alone and uh, they're kind of scary. Robin? Yep. They give you that uh, sort of installation horror idea and... You know, you know, at some point, one of the players is going to go, this ship isn't called the Nostromo, is it? And then you can just slowly nod. I would also say any normal thing that's part of our everyday lives after it's been abandoned for 10 years. So uh, there's a great Twitter account and now a coffee table book to go with it called Abandoned America. And it's a photographer who goes around looking for not just asylums, but schools and malls and churches that have just been left to deteriorate and uh some of them are are overtly already creepy like a deteriorating mausoleum you go oh that should have upkeep that's not good yeah, no no that's just unsafe yeah but just a school uh once it's been abandoned and uh, if you go in there you might run into uh, john tynes and his uh, delta green pals so that's an added bonus. it's very very possible Michael QL asks, and how would either of you have revised Mage the Ascension? It's the only one of the White Wolf games I really loved. Well, harsh, uh, hurtful aside aside, Michael, I still have crossed my fingers that maybe they will ask me to revise Mage the Ascension or help out with Mage 5e in some way. So I kind of don't want to spray it all over the internet and, uh, and, and shoot my, my bolt early. I will say that the two possible things that I would do with it are either lean more deeply into the sort of the, the Levi Straussian foundation of myth stuff that you can do with the occult that they use. And also maybe even lean into the philosophical solipsism of the setting. I, I feel like there, there, you could put a, a kind of a fun Grant Morrison engine on, on that setting and do a lot of good stuff with it. Uh, but I don't want to go into too many specifics. Robin? Again, as with the answer with Wraith, that you want to be sure 
that you're in touch with the legacy community of that uh, because there's a much bigger one for Mage mm-hmm. and make sure that you're not removing the thing that everybody loves, including the thing that, uh, that you love, Michael. But I think that there is a lot to be done just sort of updating the setting to our world where, you know, the idea of Mage is that these are the people creating consensus reality. And it's like, oh, you've gone too far now. And <laughs> there's, no, there's no more consensus reality or you're not any more in charge of how consensus reality gets screwed. It's like uh, just regular people throughout the world are beginning to rise up, band together and uh, start to mess with the foundations of, uh, because there's no the rise point. of micro traditions. Yeah. Because there's no point having the power to rewrite reality when there's no reality to rewrite. Yeah. And when some bunch of chuds anywhere can do the same thing you can do. And without all the angst about it. Lightning round. Ed Sizemore asks, how did the COVID-19 shutdowns affect Ken's ability to purchase books for his library? Did it slow his purchase rate down? What bookstore is Ken most looking forward to visiting in person when normalcy returns? Yes, it did affect my ability. There is only so much you can do with Amazon Z shops. I think that looking at my tax returns, I spent only about two-thirds as much on books in 2020 as I did in 2021, or as rather as I did in 2019. And a lot of that is stuff that I bought in the first couple of months of 2020 when I was at bookstores all the time. So yeah, it did. It did slow that down. Beloved friend of the show, Rob Heinso, hooked me up with a remote bookstore where you browse the shelves virtually online and then make Rob buy them uh, in person and ship them to you. That was, I don't think that's available <laughs> to everybody. I think that might've just been me, but, but I literally went into the first uh, no, I take that back. I went to uh, Half Price Books in Oklahoma City when I was in Oklahoma City over Christmas. But the first Chicago used bookstore that I've been in for 15 months, I went into on Saturday, open books. All the purchases go to charity. So I helped out charity a good lot. The, the one that I'm most looking forward to visiting in person, obviously, would be Treadwell's in London, because it would mean I get to go to London again. But in uh, Chicago, I'm looking forward to Powell's, uh, not Powell's Portland, which I'm also looking forward to, but Powell's in Chicago, which has been closed. You can't even walk into it. So I'm hoping that they open up pretty soon so that I can go to Powell's, uh, spend 40 bucks on books, and then go to uh, the Salonica Greek Diner and uh, and eat a Nick's Delight. That is my ideal Saturday afternoon in Chicago when nothing else is going on. Lightning round! Johan Tor asks, Why does Robin keep watching biopics? Yeah, Robin, why do you keep watching biopics? He said, leaning on his hand. I will still watch a biopic if, A, it's a director that I'm interested in. Uh, for example, uh, the recent Tesla biopic by Michael Almereda, which doesn't work, but doesn't work in a uh, more interesting way than a lot of biopics that do work, work. So I, I can't recommend it, didn't recommend it, put it as an okay, but I'm still not sorry that I watched it. It was more interesting to see that fail. Or if the campaign, if the publicity campaign implies that it actually has a through line and tells the part of the person's story rather than trying to encapsulate their whole life. Because often a biopic with a with an actual through line that tells one story involving that character can be good. It's just the, here's the whole life story. I'm very tempted by the coming Aretha thing because it has Mark Maron playing Jerry Wexler and I read his biography and I might get sucked into that, but I'm going to watch the uh, tomato meter rating uh, really closely because they tend to be overrated by critics. So you got to knock some points off just the way you got to add some points for uh, Chinese films, which are always underrated The best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive Through RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Lightning Round! Monster Talk asks, Tulpas versus Egregores. Why do Tulpas get all the good press when Egregores have so much gaming potential? I think that part of it is uh, Robin and I have been pro-Tulpa since year one of this podcast, and we have personally tulpid tulpas into being a thing. Also, Tibetan mysticism has been more exciting to uh, fringy types in America, certainly since the 1890s and definitely since the 1950s, than ancient Greek Gnostic mysticism, uh, which is where your egregores come from. Also, tulpas can be literally anything that a bad uh, mage or lama dreams up, whereas egregores have to embody a pre-existing principle by and large, and so they're they're less various. I mean, we have Slimer. He's an egregore of gluttony, but no one calls him an egregore. They just say, oh, it's our buddy Slimer from Ghostbusters. So, I mean, individual egregores are still, you know, knocking it away. They just, you know, hide their Greek roots. They pretend that they were uh, not from Gnosticism. They were from, you know, New York. Yeah, Ken's uh, answer is exactly correct. I've been promoting tulpas for 30 years and promoting egregores for two. So they just haven't caught up yet. Also, the people who are most interested in egregores are the French, and not to uh, bag on the French at all, but they tend to write in French, which prevents the uh, egregores from breaking through into the uh, English language uh, market. But we'll, we'll keep working on that, Ken. Right. Egregores in the 21st century. Lightning round! William Bradford asks, what kind of weird and specifically Tarantonian things will happen in the Toronto path system when the outer dark starts to break through down there? A question about transit, Robin. It's the ultimate Toronto question. This is actually a question about architecture, Ken, because the path system, although it's connected to the transit system, is actually the uh, chunk of downtown where there's underground shops and corridors that are all connected up to each other and they oh it's, it's of, a pedway is what it is yeah they, they cover the bottom half of the downtown core basically yeah and you can go quite a ways uh, underground because we have some unpleasant winter here and there you can avoid uh, going outside for a long period so uh, obviously what will happen uh, when the outer dark breaks through is that some of those corridors the complex map that leads to the different places you will that will connect up to uh, the outer dark and you can uh, make a wrong turn and you think you're going to that kitchen store that is uh, weirdly still open but never seems to actually be open when you go past it and you go one step beyond and you're looking for the bathroom and you step into it and then you're sucked into the demon realm or uh, suddenly you go into the food court and uh, the humans are on the menu in the food court so it's a, a, a labyrinth that connects up to the uh, to the world beyond where the veil has dropped and uh, you can uh, accidentally uh, fall into it and where uh, the demons are learning to take on human shapes by studying our behavior and uh, the uh, choices that we make at the uh, bulk good shop. Do you have one for that? We, we, yeah, we have a Chicago Pedway. And obviously, if the outer dark breaks through, then they're going to be shaken down by the aldermen to get a license to operate. Lightning round! Ross Ireland asks, what's the one that got away? Is there a project that sounded great? And you're excited to work on, but it just didn't come together. I mean, there's a, a lot of them in, in a career as, as long as ours. But I think my most one that got away was uh, the Undying Mars book, which uh, Lynn Willis, back when he was with us and was running Chaosium, thought would be a great book. But sadly, Chaosium at that time did not have money to pay the writers. Uh, so we we agreed we should do it. I got approval on the outline. I was talking to people. I said, right now, Chaosium has no money, but if you're interested, shoot me a thing. People sent me manuscripts, some of them, which was embarrassing. Um, and then obviously it didn't happen. So I, uh, I wish it had, I wish I could have done a book with Lynn. I think that would have been 
just hilarious and great and fun and being dressed down by him would have been one of the great experiences I think of being edited in my life. So I missed that. And the book would have been amazing. You know, Cthulhu on Mars in the early 21st century. What's, what's not to love about that? That's a, that's a great concept. So, yep. Sorry it didn't happen, but you look forward, not back. Robin, what do you got? I got a nibble once on designing a Sandman CCG for DC Comics. It got as far as being told that Neil Gaiman liked the, the pitch that I wrote, but didn't go any further than that. Also, longtime listeners may remember that there was a, a few years ago, I was associated with a Kickstarter that tried to raise money to do a tablet-based tabletop RPG rule set where the uh, all the rules mechanics would be uh, handled by the, the tablet, and it didn't get funding. I would still love to take another shot at using the tools of mobile computing to solve the uh, handling problems of uh, the tabletop uh, RPG format. Lightning round! Sam Harris asks, what film in any genre captures well the spirit of an F20 game? Robin? I'm going to go with a, a weird answer that there's nothing about fantasy about this. There's nothing about going up in levels. There's no dragons. There's no cursed swords. There's no bards. Oh, actually, there is a bard. There's two bards. No, there's just one. There's a bard. And that's Rio Bravo. That the, <laughs> the camaraderie <laughs> that you find in some of Howard Hawks' great films, including uh, Only Angels Have Wings, the, the group of people, the adventuring party who are together and have that dynamic. And it's all really more about them hanging out and having banter with each other than uh, the big action climax at the end, which it has and is a bigger fun action climax than you, you tended to get in the mid-60s. So um, imagine that they've got magic rings and armor and uh, one of them casts spells. And I would say uh, the group dynamic that you see in Rio, Rio Bravo. Yeah, I was uh, going in a similar direction, I think, because my answer is writ large, the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, I've said before that F20 is a game in which, like in a musical, story is carried forward by the fight scene as opposed to the song. But it's otherwise structured very much like a musical. Well, a good car chase movie, of which most of the Fast and Furious movies are, has the same structure that story is carried forward by the car chase. And in the same structural way, the fast and furious cycle, it even involves leveling up. They're all much more powerful now than way back when Dom was boosting uh, DVD players in the old days. The, the characters have, have all got, you know, plus nine cars. They've got uh, bigger, crazier problems. They're meeting much worse monsters. The fast and furious cycle is very F20-ish, and much of that due to decisions made early in the franchise. It's also about that that sense of community, or as Dom would put it, family. <laughs> so you have that same hangout spirit that you do in uh, Rio Bravo or in, I would say, with you, a, a well-run uh, F20 table, a good F20 table that's, that's working together and be productive. So yeah, Fast and Furious plus nine Dodge Challenger, Go get it, kids. There's a little too much hugging in Fast and Furious to be a, a real D20 party. But other than that, I take your point. Lightning round! Robert Sullivan asks, one for Ken's time machine. How catastrophically bad would history have been without the development of RPGs? Well, Robin, obviously, a world without art is dead. RPGs being the newest and therefore by all tenets of modernism, the greatest art form, the world would have been spiritually dead, even if nothing else had been wrong with it. But obviously, what you would have had is kids brought up without knowing how to make tactical choices in the moment. There would have been no video game industry, obviously. Video games is just RPGs on the video, so they wouldn't have had those fast twitch and reflexes. So what I'm saying, Robin, and I think that I'm within the parameters established by the RAND Foundation for a prognostication, I think that we would be ruled by ISIS now because we would not have defeated them in the battlefield. That's what I think would have happened. What do you think, Robin? So, Robert, I've actually uh, borrowed Ken's machine to look into the alternate reality where, where that pertains. And that it is a really bad reality. And it's a different bad reality than Ken's. So there's a whole every reality where RPGs don't exist. But the one is bad. So the one I looked at, first of all, Ken and I have real jobs, Ugh. which is terrifying. But also that means that you, Robert, are not listening to this podcast at this very moment. And in fact, uh, in this other reality, you are uh, driving a vehicle 
and you're listening to a much more boring podcast and you fall asleep. And, uh, <gasps> well, I don't want to say Robert, but it's, it's bad for you personally. Doesn't look good. If role playing and this podcast does not exist. Lightning round! Wayne Rossi asks, how would you incorporate a world chess championship into an RPG scenario, Robin? Uh, well, it would have to happen in Russia during the Cold War, and it would be the yep. uh, cover for an espionage mission, and you would have a, a chess expert along uh, for the ride as part of the mission. But on the very night before, uh, whether they are uh, poisoned or uh, just succumb to a good old-fashioned ordinary heart attack, they're incapacitated and a member of your crew has to substitute and fake Grandmaster-level skill, undoubtedly with the uh, help of your astral spell or uh, vampire blood or good old-fashioned earpiece in the ear, although you'd think even the Soviets would be able to spot that. And uh, you would have to both win the tournament or at least drag it out long enough in order to run the op. I think that everything you say is correct about being in the territory of the Soviets during the Cold War. I think that it's most fun to imagine it being a sort of a spy-fi unknown armies game. And you've been infiltrated into the Soviet Union because you know that this chess match is somehow important and you figure out, oh, this is the chess match that happens every 70 years or every 66 years in which uh, the Comte de Saint-Germain plays chess under one of his identities for the future of the world. And uh, the way that the pieces move is going to determine how your game world unfolds over the next little bit. And so it is incumbent on you to, as you say, replace the American champion and play against the, the Russian uh, Count Ronsky version of Saint-Germain and hopefully do well for everything you love against the implacable forces of entropy uh, represented by A, the Soviets, and B, the Count. So I think that would be fun. Lightning round! Jake B8 says, I recently finished The Cthulhu Wars by Mrs. Height and Bauman. I watched all the movie recommendations in the back of that book. Do you have any other movie recommendations along a similar vein? So what... Uh, Cthulhu Warsy uh, sort of things have come along since you published the book. I think that uh, Dog Soldiers had already come out at the time, but because it was British soldiers, I was less. There's only a limited space in that in that bibliography, but I would recommend that because it is probably the best soldiers versus the supernatural movie, and you can of course take uh, the character notes and some of the other things from it and uh, fold that out into them fighting Deep Ones or Byaki or whatever else. Um, and then also, I think that I liked Overlord a little better than you did, Robin, but you know, World War II, two-fisted Americans fighting Nazi zombies, that seems uh, on brand for the Cthulhu Wars. Uh, do you have any uh, soldiers v. Supernatural? Uh, Annihilation, of course. Annihilation, yes, obviously. Less wars and more investigation. I guess the, the, the mission that, that Oscar Isaac came back from would be the, the Cthulhu Wars mission. Right. The uh, Annihilation is more sort of Lost Patrol, but it's, yeah, right. it's very much that. Lightning, Lightning round! Nikolai asks, I recently saw my own profession portrayed in another round, and it was weird. Along those lines, I think it was meant to be weird, just there. I don't think that was supposed to be standard Danish high school. Along those lines, what part of RPG design make good cinema, and what should be left out? Robin? I'm going to say uh, all of it. Uh, <laughs> I was at an improv yeah. show a couple of years ago, and uh, because I like to sit in the front, and because I had a colorful summer shirt on, the performer looked to me for the prompt questions. And once I realized that he was looking for my profession in order to then do a hilarious improv, I was like, oh, no, you're screwed, man. Don't, don't. And I, like, tried to warn him off. And no, I, I'm a writer. Oh, that's great. What, what do you write? I write tabletop role-playing games. And so, of course, there is no frame of reference for that. There's no shared understanding of what that involved. And so they really had to struggle to come up with jokes to riff off of that profession and would have been better off if they'd gone on to a, a fireman or, you know, a, a computer repair person or anybody who does anything that has any sort of physical resonance in the world. I'm sure when someone finally does write about a role-playing game designer, they will get it all wrong by having that person have money <laughs> yeah, that's, and therefore that's, that ruins it. have the freedom of action to go around getting into trouble or investigating things or whatever the plot needs them to do instead of being at their job. So, you know, maybe someday if there hasn't been already, there'll be like a police procedural set 
at a role-playing game convention. And, uh, you know, perhaps the thinly veiled people who get murdered will be the ones we're rooting to get murdered. I don't know. But writing itself is incredibly boring. That's why there's lots of films about writers and you almost never seen them writing except they're banging the typewriter and balling things up and throwing them in the wastebasket. Can't even do that anymore. There's no part of role-playing game design that should be part of uh, fiction. None of it. And I would say the the parts that it shares with another round, namely hanging out and drinking together. You know, one of those late 90s indie films with no budget that was just a bunch of uh, personable young people in a bar. That That is cinematic. That is what RPG design, that's the part you want to watch. Uh, none of the rest of it is particularly interesting. Um, even watching people play role-playing games, God forbid. There's a TV show called Mystic Quest that's about computer game design that's apparently funny. That seems like a long way around the barn for, for that. Right. And also, we are not the audience for this thing, right? No. I can't watch <laughs> documentaries about fandom. I can't watch Trekkies or any of those other things where it's like, suddenly they're at a convention and it's like, then I... Just start to feel sleep deprived and cranky. You get PTSD. <laughs> yes. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing lightning round Dustin says, in April, Egyptian authorities moved 22 royal mummies to a new museum via a multi-million dollar parade over freshly repaved streets. What was the real reason for the spectacle and fanfare? Ken? Clearly, the spectacle and fanfare uh, reminds all observers, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this argument, of the Dionysian Menagerie Parade by Ptolemy II Philadelphus, which he launched at a moment when the authority of the Ptolemaic crown was beginning to be called into question by the Egyptian populace, the parade was meant to overawe them and demonstrate uh, not just piety and fidelity to the Egyptian gods, but also the vast power and wealth of the state. And it did so. And obviously, uh, given the ructions that have shaken Egypt in the last few years, the current military government is, you know, sort of thinking, what if Amun-Ra is mad at us? That's not good. Let's, let's have a parade and show Amun-Ra that we're still cool. So it was basically an act of placating uh, the Egyptian gods who don't uh, take any of this monotheism stuff well, and they certainly don't take uh, monotheists who don't pay attention to the Egyptian gods well. So this was just bribery to the gods and uh, secondarily spectacle for the masses. Robin? Well, Ken, I, I give you all points uh, for giving the unexpected answer. So I'll just give the answer everybody wants uh, because this is lightning round. You're Lathotep. It's near Lathotep, people. Lightning round! Andrew Miller asks, apparently, there is no universally accepted distinction between a cocktail and a mixed drink. Robin, how would you define the difference? So in between posing this question and us dropping episodes, Andrew has probably heard our <laughs> invention of the cocktail segment on uh, the Food Hut and uh, will recall, but we will repeat for the edification of all, that originally a cocktail is ice, sugar, bitters, and booze. And that was a, a subcategory, and then it eventually migrated into being a, a category. So I do not approve 
of being the sort of pedantic person who goes into a bar and points to things that are not that and go, that's not a cocktail, you know. And because it's a bar, you have the opportunity to be punched in the nose uh, when you say that. So I think it is more than acceptable to say cocktail for any sort of mixed drink because uh, nose punching is bad and pedantry is bad. And not to mention it annoyed the English in the Edwardian era that Americans called things cocktails. So keep up annoying the hated English. Lightning round! P. O'Neill asks, what is the sorcerer's secret of General Ulysses S. Grant's whiskey? It is the distilled power of the dying god, the corn king. Generations brought probably from the sacred cornfields, defended uh, inadequately, sadly, by Tenskwatawa, the prophet, against the forces of William Henry Harrison, the sacred cornfield captured uh, there in uh, downstate Illinois, turned into a, uh, a field from which corn mash could be taken and carefully, ritually sealed up in casks against the time of America's greatest need, which was, of course, as you know, 1861, when Ulysses S. Grant shook off a literal lifetime of failure to become the greatest single American general. So thank you, General Ulysses S. Grant. Thank you, obscure Fraserian corn cults somewhere in downstate. And of course, because Lincoln famously quipped that he would like all of his generals to get some of Ulysses S. Grant's whiskey. The whiskey, surely uh, some of it uh, remains or at least you can reproduce the formula for that so that it can be the uh, MacGuffin in a, a later set a weirdness game in which, uh, you know, one of the ingredients you need in order to uh, uh, win a battle, whether it's an actual war or uh, just a, a scrap with the bad guys, is you need to uh, get yourself some of that. You might even need to go back in time, right? It's like, you know, you need it. It has to be aged 12 years. So you have to go back in time, put the barrel 12 years in the past, and then go to where you left it. And if your GM is like mine, the bad guys will be waiting for you to uh, fight you for the barrel. Because in the last 12 years, they've solved the clues of who stole that barrel. Lightning round! Ryan Lassiter asks, pitch a gumshoe investigative scenario for Glorantha. Who are we? What are we investigating? And how? When? Why? So coincidentally, uh, I've just been writing a... Uh, RuneQuest supplement, where the characters are in a city. Being in a city and having adventures there implies uh, that you've moved on from exploring things and bashing bandits on the head to mystery and intrigue. So weirdly, I have just finished writing a GM chapter where I'm trying not to too obviously be gumshoe and be RuneQuest about it, but still lay out what that is. So the answer is you are either uh, residents or visiting adventurers in, uh, let's say, uh, the city of Pavis, because the reason that is a cool setting is it's sort of a crossroads where all of uh, different cultures meet where normally they wouldn't. And you are either directly uh, trying to influence who the next governor of uh, Pavis will be when the recent conqueror moves on out, or you are in the wash of that as you're just trying to do the usual thing of accumulate uh, glory and, and money, and you're a uh, mystery solver for hire in uh, the city of Pavis. Ken Ryan adds a version of the question for you, which is pitch a gumshoe investigative scenario for the mythic Bronze Age Aegean. I would say that uh, the thing you investigate in the mythic Bronze Age Aegean is the will of the gods. You need to find out what the gods think before you do a thing. And so the scenario involves one of you as a soothsayer. Others are important officials of Makine or Tyrans or wherever. And you're trying to decide if the gods will punish Tyrans for taking part in the Trojan War or uh, engaging in some other heroic, you know, sacking Minoan Crete, that kind of thing. And so you have to, A, figure out what the gods want with your investigative soothsaying and other investigative powers, because often omens happen and you didn't see it, so you have to go investigate and find out. And then the other thing is, once you know the will of the gods, you have to wire around it so you can still go loot those foreigners, which is what you actually want to do. So you develop the problem and then you solve it and uh, if you steal the palladium from Troy, then Athena will be fine with it. Great. Not a problem. Back on your side. You figure out what, what it is you can do to allow your city to go get those solid gold goodies. Lightning round! Wesley Marshall asks, who is more out of their minds thinking they could win and by how much? The Confederacy thinking they could beat the Union or the Japanese thinking they could beat the U.S.? I think the most out of their minds in that dyad is the Japanese because there was literally no way 
under God's green heaven that they could win. The Confederacy could have won a political victory, and uh, I have to assume someone in the Confederacy was counting on that. Uh, the elections of 1862, the elections of 1864, both could have gone very badly for the uh, side of freedom, and uh, then the Confederacy would have been able to basically win the armistice with British help. The Japanese, there was no political solution after Pearl Harbor. It couldn't have happened. The best they could have hoped for was to remain uh, on their islands without being atom bombed, and they lost that chance some ways along the road. So the Japanese were the wrongest. The Confederacy had a play. They probably didn't know they had a play, and then they couldn't make the play happened because by then they were fighting Ulysses S. Grant and his sorcerer's whiskey. Right. Because the Confederacy, if it wanted to keep on being the Confederacy, which it, it shouldn't have, of course, but they wanted to. But it did. It did want that. Yeah, they did want that. <laughs> they had no choice but to go to war in order to try to win, whereas uh, the Japanese could quite easily have not have gone to war with the U.S. And they did so anyway. So that's a double mistake on their part. Lightning round. round! Oren Gashuri asks, one of your players is playing Vladimir, and the other is playing Estragon. They've been waiting for Godot for most of your campaign, and now it's finally time for your well-crafted reveal. What happens, Robin? What do you mean, what happens? Uh, I think Oren means what happens. I don't get it. W what do you mean, what happens? Well, what Oren is trying to ask is, what is the thing that happens for the reveal? Well, the reveal is going to come. We just have to wait longer for the reveal, Ken. Oh, yeah, you're, you're saying that you think that Oren knows the reveal, has seen the reveal, and wants us to tell him about the reveal? Because Oren knows that the reveal is coming? Well, we all know the reveal is coming. We just have to wait here by this tree longer. It's imminent. I, don't, I didn't even get the question. And then, then it will happen. Yeah. Lightning round! Friedrich Brownison asks, Why didn't meat pies take off in the U.S. in the same way as hamburgers? In Australia, they're easy to get but I don't find them anywhere else, and I don't get why. They're also big in Finland, I can tell you that, and I suspect the reason they did not take off in America is, as a percentage of population, fewer immigrants from meat pie country, from Cornwall and from Finland. Uh, obviously, there's parts of America where there are Finnish and Cornish populations, but mostly they're uh, simple sandwich folk from uh, the, the lower parts of England and from Germany. And uh, they just don't have meat pies, such a big deal there. And uh, when they do have them, they're served in sort of a, a family meal situation, like your your Yorkshire puddings and whatnot. So just not a, not a fast-eaten thing. Not enough Cornish tin miners in America, that's why. I'm living in the control sample of that because Quebec is a meat pie province and Ontario only became a land of meat pies when the Jamaican beef patty came to visit us and, and stayed and it became a Toronto staple in, uh, in the 80s. So I think it is exactly about uh, where your uh, migration comes from. Lightning Round! Frank Motocross Redding asks, what's a good spell for space witches? Open airlock. <laughs> I, I think the good old uh, ritual of the stifling air is also pretty strong. Lightning, Lightning round! Neil DeCarteret asks, what are your go-to voices or accents for NPCs? My most famous uh, go-to uh, NPC voice is my Deep One voice, which sounds basically like a degenerate version of the Pepperidge Farms guy. But I also enjoy the Fallout Delta Green game right now is in uh, Chicago. And so my players have said this this season is a panoply of Chicago accents. I'm, I'm doing lots of different Chicago accents because all the NPCs have to sound different, but they all have to sound like they're from Chicago. So it's pretty exciting. I'm getting a workout there. Robin? The one people will expect me to say is Walter Brennan. The sidekick character, Ooh. Walter Brennan. But of course, that is, that is actually way too broad. And I don't have a lot of coots in any recent games that I've run. So mm. basically, my default voice that I land on, if I don't know what a witness or informant is going to sound like, if I don't stop myself, it's the somewhat almost sort of quasi-stoned dumb guy. So it's like, whoa, yeah, uh... I, I thought I saw somebody go by, but then I looked down at the counter and so there's just sort of a, a flash. So what is this about? Anyway, that's my, that is my actual default voice. And on that note, before we strain our voices further, uh, we've celebrated our anniversary. We've had uh, lightning galore. Uh, we're going to be ready to uh, come back with our usual format next week. But Ken, just one more time, let's say it as we close episode 450 Lightning, Lightning Round! round.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show off your duck deception skills with our latest design, 8 points in surveillance. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.